episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show with another really fascinating guest today, uh, helping to create uh, a better tomorrow. Uh, as I like to say, you know, another in our episode of just really cool ladies uh, that are thinking about big national security issues here uh, in the United States and around the world. And I'm really happy that uh, we have the opportunity to be joined by, today by Dr. Natasha Bajima, uh, who is a subject matter expert in a variety of things, including nuclear nonproliferation, uh, cooperative threat reduction, and weapons of mass destruction terrorism, uh, and currently serves as the director of the Converging Risks Lab uh, at the Council on Strategic Risks, uh, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan security policy institute uh, devoted to anticipating, analyzing, and addressing core systemic risks to security in the 21st century uh, with special examination of the ways in which these risks intersect uh, and it can exacerbate one another. And uh, her Converging Risk Lab is a research and policy development-oriented program designed to study converging cross-sectoral risks in a rapidly changing world, bringing together experts from multiple sectors of the security community to think about these forward-thinking questions. Um, Dr. Bajima is also the founder and CEO of Nuclear Spin Cycle, which is her publishing and production company specializing uh, in national security, entertainment, and publishing. Uh, prior to all this, Dr. Bajima was at the uh, Center for the Study of Weapons of Mass Destruction at the National Defense University, uh, serving as director of the Program for Emerging Leaders, as well as serving long-term uh, detailed assignments in various capacities in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, uh, Acquisitions Technology and Logistics, Nuclear Chemical Biologic Defense Programs, and uh, and Defense Nuclear Nonproliferation uh, at the Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration. Uh, prior to joining the center, Dr. Bajima was also a research associate at the Center for International Cooperation at NYU, uh, where she supported research staff of the high-level panel on threats, challenges, and change established by the uh, United Nations Secretary General. Uh, she also served as a junior political officer in the Weapons of Mass Destruction Branch of the Department for Disarmament Affairs at the United Nations. Uh, she has numerous publications to her name, including uh, two co-edited uh, nonfiction volumes entitled Terrorism and Counterterrorism and Weapons of Mass Destruction and Terrorism, uh, both published by McGraw-Hill. She's also written the novels uh, Bionic Bug, Rescind Daughter, Genomic Data, and Project Gecko. Uh, she holds a master's in international policy from Monterey Institute of International Studies and a PhD in international relations from the uh, Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Uh, welcome, Dr. Natasha Bajima, to our show. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's really exciting having you. It, it, you know, you have an amazing background, and uh, which I'd love to you know hand things over to you like we typically do, just to to talk a little bit more about it. If you could uh, take us a little bit back in time, uh, sort of to the beginning of everything from where you grew up, uh, how you got interested uh, in uh, international relations, international studies, and uh, a little bit in what how you got pushed in the direction of what what, what I, we'll talk about a little later on in terms of uh, interest in preventing the worst possible things from happening to us. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a it's a long story as as you'd guess. Um, so I'm originally from Michigan. Um, grew up in Michigan. Spent uh, most of my life there. Um, and um, I studied German and German literature in college, and that brought me to Germany. Um, and in Germany, I did a number of things, and I came across um, the Monterey Institute of International Studies as a graduate program. Um, I met somebody who was studying there, and she gave me a brochure, and I decided, 
I'd love to go there. I, I was interested in international affairs. I could speak fluent German. Um, I wanted to, I didn't know exactly where I wanted to focus, but I knew I wanted to do international studies. And so I went to graduate school um, back in 2000, prior to 9-11. And at the time I was interested in environment, energy security, things like that. Um, but I didn't know that Monterey Institute, which is now called Middlebury Institute, has an emphasis on weapons of mass destruction. And I found out quickly because Monterey, if you know Monterey, California, it's a small town. There's about 50,000 plus people there. Um, it's a very small town center. And so basically all the grad students go to the same bars every Friday night and you go and you have conversations and everybody would be talking about North Korea, ballistic missiles, things like that. I'm like, come on guys, let's talk about something else. And they're like, yeah, no, um, you, you can get on the bandwagon or not. And so I basically, when everybody else went to Washington for the summer to do an internship, I decided to stay behind and do an internship at the Center for Nonproliferation Studies. Um, it's one of the premier think tanks on WMD and nonproliferation. And um, why go to DC if you can already, you know, do that in California? And so that's basically how things got started, kind of by accident in a bar. Um, so that's how I got into WMD. As far as why apocalyptic scenarios, why worst case scenarios, I think it started out because um, as a kid, my dad did not protect me from watching films. Um, so I watched The Terminator at the age of eight, maybe eight years old. Um, I watched China Syndrome when I was about that age as well. And so I was consuming a lot of adult level entertainment that featured end of the world uh, scenarios, which obviously my father enjoyed. Um, my mom would leave the room, um, <laughs> but I had no issue with it. I actually found it very fascinating. And um, so I, get, I think that kind of is the basis for why I would think about these, these types of issues. And having graduated from the Monterey Institute, um, Basically, we had a really cool program where we could do an internship mm -hmm. um, at an international organization. It was a paid internship, which was very rare back then um, and probably still rare today. And um, I was able to go to, to uh, New York City and work at the United Nations uh, for a year. And it happened to be 2003. And 2003 is a very momentous year uh, for being at the UN because uh, we were... The United States was um, talking about going to, going to war in Iraq and uh, North Korea had also um, withdrawn or said they were going to withdraw from the nuclear nonproliferation treaty. Right when I started my job at the UN, um, they eventually were brought back on board and eventually left the treaty. Anyways, later, they're now a nuclear weapon state. Um, in any event, I worked on the same floor as Mohammed Al-Baradai, who was then the director general of the International Atomic Energy Agency and Hans Blix, who is one of the chief inspectors for the UN, um, UNMOVIC was called the UN, I don't know what the acronym is. It was the inspections agency for um, um, ensuring that Iraq no longer had WMD programs. They were never let back into the country. UNSCOM was the first inspections agency. They were eventually kind of, kind of kicked out in 1998 and then UNMOVIC was supposed to resume that, um, that task, but um, weren't able to effectively and suspicions about um, Iraq's WMD programs continued to persist and led to um, us to go to a, a war in Iraq in 2003. So it was a really 
fascinating time to be there. I was actually in um, the room um, or at least a f- um, offshoot room when Colin Powell had the vial of powder that was supposed to be a si- simulation of anthrax mm-hmm. and um, kind of, you know, gave his speech and it didn't go over well with his colleagues. Um, and so I was actually there. Um, and so that was kind of the beginning of my career. Really, really cool. And um, equally cool are some of the some of the titles uh, to your the reports that you write at the, the Council on Strategic Risks. And just I have a few of them here. Uh, uh, can humans resist the allure of machine speed for nuclear weapons? Uh, how to counter China's coronavirus disinformation campaign? And, and one of my favorite films of all times, Lessons from Dr. Strangelove, The Risk of Deploying Low-Yield Nukes on Submarines. Um, Natasha, when you when you go into the, well, I know you go into the office much, but, but when you used to go into the office, uh, into the Converging Risk Lab at the Council on Strategic Risk, uh, get a cup of coffee, see, see your coworkers, um, how do you decide what to do on a given day in the office? How do you decide what to work on? Where do these uh, priorities come from. Um, do you say? Do you watch some of the movies and then say, "Hey, you know, I got, this could happen." Yeah, actually, I get a lot of my ideas from from fiction. At least uh, thinking about the future and and writing fiction as well. Um, but I mean, obviously, everything has a common theme: uh, end of the world, mass destruction, apocalyptic scenarios, systemic risks, um, technological risks. So there's there's a tie. There's a link uh, all throughout there, and um, so. Oftentimes what determines my interests uh, for any given time is like everybody else, what's happening in the world, um, what news uh, headlines are. Um, but then other times, you know, there are just things that continue to persist and um, you need to continue to, to write about them. And nuclear weapons is one of those issues where they're, they're not really going away these days. And we have thousands of nuclear weapons that still exist, and but they have seemed to lost some, lost some of their... Um, place in, um, you know, international affairs, and they're kind of off the radar um, in many respects, at least for the general public, and I think that's incredibly problematic. Just um, about two weeks ago now, uh, you published a a paper, it was entitled Weapons of Mass Agility, uh, a new threat framework for mass effects 21st century, and you you go into the discussion about you know, weapons of mass destruction that sort of served a purpose, but we are in this new era now with drones and uh, cyber and all sorts of other scary stuff. Um, and you, you sort of outlined a um, sort of a list of things that we really need to prioritize in thinking, you know, not everyone's going to have a, an intercontinental ballistic missile anymore. All sorts of other things, smaller, faster, artificial intelligence and so forth. Uh, talk about this paper, if you would, for a few minutes and, and uh, you know, why, why you wrote it and, and some of what uh, you, you thought about going into it. Yeah, so the origin story starts probably back in 2014 um, when I would be reading about national security and, and technolo- technolo- technological advancement. And um, I, w- I became concerned with 3D printing, with drones, with artificial intelligence, with nanotechnology, synthetic biology, 
And there wasn't really, so I'd been working on WMD for many, many years within the Department of Defense, and there wasn't really um, a way to kind of start talking or thinking about those things and how those technologies might begin to interact with nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. And so I went to my, my then director and I said, we really need to study these issues. We need to understand you know, how these technologies are going to interact with WMD, because when our adversaries decide to cause harm, they're not going to look at what we would like them or not what we'd like them, but what they have in the past, they're going to mm -hmm. look out at the possibilities today. Yep. And they're going to make decisions based on um, the kind of harm they can do for the least cost or the least effort while still, you know, kind of maintaining their cover. Um, WMD doesn't really buy you that kind of cover, right? But other lesser, you know, more commercial technologies like drones, um, like um, being able to hack, I mean, um, 3D printing, those types of technologies are so widespread that it's it's easier to engage with them. They're more accessible, they're cheaper, um, but they also don't draw immediate attention. Um, if you're messing around with a biological agent um, and somebody finds out about it and tells the, they're gonna tell the FBI most likely. Um, but if you're playing around with a drone, no one's gonna think anything of it, um, you know, until you start to talk about doing some crazy stuff. And so um, I started a study that we called Emergence and Convergence at the National Defense University. And we examined um, the impact of different technologies on nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons. And that included artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, synthetic biology, additive manufacturing, um, and robotics. And so I led this study for a number of years. And what was interesting is that I, I often held events and would kind of bring together experts in these technologies to come and tell them, tell us about them and, and to give us, you know, some sort of, um, yeah, some sort of ground basis so that we could understand then how they might interact with weapons of mass destruction and there was a lot of resistance. Um, there were a lot of people who were really interested, but there was also mm -hmm. resistance to the idea. And there was concern that, oh, we can't have these new technologies. We don't wanna um, disrupt our mission set. We don't wanna, and, and if, you're, if you're in the government, you talk about rice bowls, you talk about um, you know, lanes and, and, and missions and all of those things. And now that I'm not in government, I call them silos. Um, silos of excellence to be sure, but if they're not interacting, then they're not representing the threat space because adversaries don't exist in silos. They're looking out across the, the playing field and they're making decisions across all of those different possibilities. And so my idea to kind of examine the concept of WMD and whether it was um, a concept that was holding us back or not um, came from this kind of experience. And so I did do a, I think six month um, focus group um, study where I brought together um, experts across both weapons of mass destruction and these technologies together in small groups to ask the question, are, does WMD still, still still fit the bill when we're talking about mass destruction? Are there other technologies and scenarios that we should be considering? Is there a different concept? Does, does mass destruction even apply to today? And so if you look back over the last three decades, back to 2000, um, no, 19, 1990s, the end of the Cold War, you think about th back three decades, and you think about WMD use. So we're talking nuclear, biological, chemical. So we haven't seen nuclear. This is a good thing. Mm. We have seen bio in the form of the anthrax letters in 2001. Um, I think about 21, 22 people got sick. Um, I think about five or six got killed. Um, you, I'd, I'd have to look it up. Um, 
then you have the Umshin Rikyo sarin um, right. gas attack um, in 1995, the Tokyo subway. Um, you have Syria's use of chemical weapons against its own population in tactical battlefield situations where the numbers of casualties were not mass. They were, I think they were using those weapons as weapons of psychological terror and they inflict enormous pain and suffering on, on their own populations. And so they were using them in a, in a way to affect um, their population, but it wasn't mass destruction, mass casualties, mass destruction. So when when the term WMD was first established, it was back in the 1940s. We were in the middle um, of a world war, um, the dawn of the nuclear weapons, the nuclear age. And um, it was a very specific context. And so weapons of mass destruction made sense. But if you look across the last 30 years, and, and what I really think is interesting is the phenomenon of states using um, chemical agents in, in peacetime to assassinate individuals. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking specifically about the use of VX nerve agent. Um, we think North Korea assassinated um, the stepbrother of Kim Jong-un, um, and that was back in, I think, 2017. And then the use of Novichok's twice now by the Russian government or um, agents affiliated with the Russian government um, to attempt to assassinate um, dissidents or former intelligence officers um, once in 2018 in um, Salisbury, the UK incident, and then most recently 2020 um, with um, Alexei Navalny, um, the Russian dissident. What's interesting about these and that Novichok is, was developed as a chemical warfare agent. It is mm. considered at least as lethal as VX. Some um, agents within that family are more lethal than VX. Sure. So we're talking about a, 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 an agent that is capable, that's potential of carrying out mass destruction, but being used to assassinate. Yep. So why is the question? And so that's a that's something that I've been thinking about. Well, because you get a lot of bang for your buck if you use a WMD, you get a lot of strategic effect. You VX, Novichok, they factor into the calculations at the national and international level. They cause a mass media campaign blitz. If you can get <laughs> If you can, you know, get what you're looking for from a very tactical use of it, you're going to you're going to do that. And I think that there are now other weapons types like drones and drones are I think they fit well in this category because they're scalable. Yep. Um, you can use them as assassination tools. You can use them um, in swarming. You can use them potentially to take out a, a larger um, target. Um, like a destroyer, or, or at least damage it significantly so that it's taken out of operation. Um, you can also use drones to deliver biological or chemical agents and create the ultimate weapon of mass destruction. And drones, even though we don't yet see that, but we can imagine it. And I actually, in Bionic Bug, I have, um, is set in the future and um, drone delivery is, is very much in play. And I think that will happen to us soon. But if you can imagine, um, drones flying over us overhead on a regular basis, they, you know, yeah, they could just be delivery drones, but are they? And how do you know? Are they surveillance drones? I mean, that that could make you feel uncomfortable. Are they weaponized drones? Like, could it come down and could it get me? Does it have facial recognition? Um, who's operating the drone? What about a swarm of drones? If you had a swarm of like, even little, little commercial drones you can get on Amazon and they all kind of dove at you at once, would that be cool? No, I think it would not be cool. Right. And so there's just this potential for fear. And what's interesting about drones is they're physical, they're tangible. 
we haven't seen the kind of uproar that I think we should see about cyber. I mean, we just had another, well, maybe we're seeing that now with gas prices, like going through the roof. I saw something somewhere where people were putting gas in plastic <laughs> bags or something. Um, yeah, recommend against that. And um, well, this, this was a cyber attack. And, and I wrote a piece actually, um, I think last month in IEEE Spectrum Magazine that um, cyber is a new form of, is, is opening up a new form of warfare. It's hybrid, it's gray, um, it's hard to attribute, but it causes physical effects. So it's not just, I'm gonna come and hack you and take your information and I'm gonna sell your information or blackmail you with it. Um, now it's, I can access a system that has physical effects and ramifications and I can even hold it hostage. So that's where that that's where that piece comes. It's it's my plea to the U.S. government to please, please, please think outside the box. And WMD is still a major threat today. But if we're going to use it to prevent us from thinking more broadly, please let's not. That that's that's kind of the gist of it. Absolutely, and it comes at a very timely moment, especially with this colonial pipeline thing and people putting <laughs> putting gas in bags. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's so spot on, and it's. Uh, so prescient for, uh, for everything that's happening right this moment. But um, Natasha, I mean, so, you know, aside from you know, all of these, uh, this research you're doing and these amazing reports, scary reports, uh, you also, uh, you, you are the, you know, the CEO of Nuclear Spin Cycle and you, you, you've successfully published several books. Um, you have uh, the, the Bionic Bug uh, Genomic Data and Project Gecko and they, uh, feature a, a special operator, Larry Kingsley, and then you have this uh, rescind order about artificial intelligence and nuclear weapons, uh, featuring um, a nuclear weapons specialist, Dr. Morgan Shaw. Sounds like someone, someone we know. Um, why talk about sort of uh, when you got interested in in, in writing, um, when and why you got interested in, in writing these novels, and sort of uh, I, you know, obviously we all you know we have our our day jobs, but there's stuff that we can't always get across or we get burned out or this or that. Talk about a little bit about why why you're doing this. They sound like great books. I haven't done them yet, but uh, take us a little bit on the journey, Nicholas Spin Cycle. Yeah, so um, I think I wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. I was always a creative person. I did a lot of art and writing. Um, and then I think when I graduated high school, my parents said, uh, pull, pulled me aside and said, okay, you need to get a real job. We don't <laughs> you know, want you to have the, the artist, the creative life. And, um, you know, fast forward many, many years. And, you know, I needed some time to be able to write. I was working at the Pentagon for three years. I was working on my PhD. So I was always kind of busy. And so the first, the idea for my first novel came to me in 2010 um, when I was working at the National Defense University. I was um, at Fort McNair, which is a really beautiful location in Southwest DC, um, right out the fork of the Anacostia um, and other river. And um, the Potomac. <laughs> I had just forgotten it for a second. I haven't been in DC for like a year and a half and I forget that. Um, so it was at that fork and I was sitting outside and I was looking out at the river and the scene in my head um, of a young woman uh, working at the National Defense University, but then working at the White House as a nuclear weapons expert, basically jumps in the river to escape um, an attacker that's coming toward her with, with a gun and there's not a lot of places to go. And so I, I in the, in, in in my head, it, it made sense. And then later I had to make sure it made sense in the novel, but that, that's not a novel that I've actually published. So that's how it started. And then 
basically in 2016, I had some more time um, to devote to it and I started um, writing more regularly and that's where Bionic Bug and Project Echo. And I think one of my frustrations working in government, working in the field of WMD is that, you know, it's hard to have impact. And um, I, I really wanted to have more impact than just on the policymakers. I wanted to be able to help the American people understand this highly technological era that we find ourselves in and both the risks and the opportunities. And I felt like fiction was the better way to do that. Um, they can read my scary papers if they like, but it's much better to, to, to do it in a fiction context. And I think there's a lot of learning opportunity there. And given my creative um, interests and aspirations and kind of where I found myself, um, that's basically how it started. And what's interesting is that after I was having so much fun that after a number of years, I was like, you know, maybe I should do this full time. So I actually quit my job at the Department of Defense. I left Washington. Um, I moved out to Texas because my parents have a home here and I was able to live here for a bit before figuring out what I wanted to do and started my own company, Nuclear Spin Cycle. And the idea was to produce creative content with national security impact. I wanted to get in the TV and film business, which is why I write fiction in the first place, because I always visualize it as being made into a show or made into a film. And um, so that was the vision. And then I got out here and I was trying to explore how to do that, then the pandemic hit. So I think that's a common element in a lot of our stories is we had these great plans, and then something went a little awry that I didn't yeah. plan for. And that changed some of my calculations. It changed my ability to move out to Hollywood and get started, um, for example. And um, so I started doing some consulting to kind of put the roof over my head. So this is what I know how to do. This is how I know how to make money. Um, and I started doing consulting for the um, Council on Strategic Risks. And um, eventually they asked me to come on board and I was like, sure, why not? So actually the irony here is that I still, I have a job at in DC at a think tank, I'm not there. I am working remote, um, but there is an opportunity now because I have that platform as well to start to develop um, content for TV and film that has national security impact and then in the context of being in the think tank world. So I think it kind of all works well together. Um, and so I am actually about to, um, well, I have kind of launched, but I'm about to take off on my first big production project as part of my, my company. Um, and it's called Radioactive Road Tripping. Yep. It is, uh, I'm gonna go on the road for a year um, around the country the United States, and I'm going to visit past and current sites of the U.S. nuclear weapons complex. I'm going to talk to regular people about nuclear war, about nuclear weapons, find out what they think. I'm going to talk to nuclear experts, and I'm going to produce a show for YouTube um, to document this journey and um, share it, share it basically with a community of people who are interested in this sort of thing. And so I'm wearing my, my shirt. R&R, radioactive road mm -hmm. tripping. Um, and basically I leave in December. So I will be doing my job, my full-time job while I do the show. That's, that's going to be really exciting. And, and you're, you're packing into uh, your, your dogs into the camper as well. I was reading. Yes. <laughs> oh, well, that's really, you know, it, it's, it's funny because when I, when I, uh, be, before I read about uh, radioactive road tripping, I was, you know, one of the things I always want to ask folks like you is, you know, what do you do to relax? 
Uh, <laughs> what, what do you do to get your mind? And so obviously you're going to be driving around your camper and but you're still going to be thinking about nuclear war and talking to people. Uh, what other types of things do you do to, you know, forget about all these <laughs> problems? Uh, do you like to run marathons? Do you like to meditate? <laughs> what, what, what else do you like to do? To, uh, well, to I, I don't run marathons. I, I do uh, do yoga. Um, okay. But as far as getting away from it, I think, you know, when I'm in the fiction world, I feel like I'm escaping. Even if I'm considering these type of scenarios, it's it's not really real. It's, it's, it's fiction. And, um, but what's interesting is, I am actually writing now my fifth novel. Um, it is a dystopian science fiction thriller, um, probably YA. Think um, Hunger Games meets George Orwell's 1984. Cool. Um, I'm calling it Westphalia. Um, it addresses my interest in the decline of nation states as the primary organizational you know, body for humans. Um, so it references the Peace of Westphalia uh, from 1648. And um, so it's post um, it's post Civil War U.S., uh, which hit, hit close to home in 2020 a little bit. Um, and so I think I brought in some pandemic flavor into it that there was a pandemic that led to destabilization of the country and kind of a, a collapse, and then a takeover by um, six tech giants. Um, who are not formally named in the book, but you can probably pick up on, on who they are. Okay. Um, anyways, that come together to restore peace, but they offer up the, the survivors of the Second World War um, a, a deal. Um, we will give you your basic income and needs. They will all be met. Um, if you have skills, you will be employed. If not, that's okay. You can do hobbies until the end of your day. Um, but in exchange, we want, basically, you don't get any privacy. We want total, total surveillance. We want to be able to, to basically surveil everything and have all of that data. And um, so there's a social credit system, kind of like uh, um, if that's going on in China. Um, and so that's, that's basically where the novel starts. It's dystopian science fiction and a young woman uh, who's 17, who's attempting to advance on what I call the spectrum and earn points toward upgrading so that she can become employed and um, have uh, interesting work because she's super smart. Um, she kind of struggles with that. And um, basically the reason why has to do with all the machinations of the, the leaders of Westphalia and she happens to be somebody special, so. Very cool, very cool indeed. Um, Natasha, I, there's there's a question I want to ask. You're the you're the, the only you know, the first and only nuclear weapons specialist that I've ever uh, talked to in my life. So, uh, oh wow, this is, this is a <laughs> unique situation here. But I, I want to, and, and this is part of comedy, but at the same time, I I, I just and if, and if I'm touching on anything uh, national security wise, just you know, we'll, we'll forget this question. But so one of my favorite movies, and we'll get into one of your favorite movies, which I, I on a show I, I once heard you say that you love Jurassic Park. But one of my favorite movies uh, is Doctor Strange Love. I you know I was born in the early, late nineteen sixties, second part of the Cold War, so I was afraid of all sorts of stuff happening. But you know that was a beautiful satire of the Cold War, Stanley Kubrick, Peter Sellers, and so forth. Uh, and in Doctor Strange Love, um, they talk about this. Uh, doomsday device, um, a nuclear deterrent uh, that is uh, uh, basically assaulted nuclear weapon with something called cobalt thorium G, um, based on 
some theoretical bomb that physicist Leo Zillard proposed back in the 1950s. Uh, supposedly, a weapon of this nature was, has never been built, but it was an example by Leo Zillard of something that could technically kill everybody in the world. Um, were salted nuclear weapons ever created? And it, once again, if this is if I'm violating national security, don't answer this question. Uh, but um, was this ever a serious uh, strategic nuclear part of a strategic nuclear component, whether it was United States, Russia, or elsewhere that you are aware of? And I know. So where you want to go. <laughs> the, the the new bomb was um, satire for sure. Um, sure. I think that we don't need anything more um, powerful than a thermonuclear device. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, the doomsday device is, I think, the more important question here. And I wrote my novel, Rescind Order, which mm -hmm. is set in 2033, around exactly that kind of device. The idea exactly. here is to automate response to automate nuclear retaliation. Got it. The idea here, and so in the movie Dr. Strangelove, there's a lot of talk about human meddling. Yeah. And that's always a concern in a nuclear deterrence because um, is someone actually going to press the button? Can 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 someone actually press? If if you know that thousands of nuclear missiles are headed for you, are you willing to launch them? Do, do you really know that they're headed for you? I mean, you only trust the signals you've received. So if you got the order, you should believe that they're headed for you. But do you? Because if you if you don't and you press the button, you just launched nuclear war. You've just ended the world, right? So. That's one of the, the reasons why there's all this talk about human meddling. And so the, the Soviets' response in the movie was to develop this, this kind of human tamper-free retaliatory capability that would just automatically launch nuclear weapons upon detection yeah. of, of a nuclear attack. Okay. And so with, with artificial intelligence, machine learning, we could now envision um, in the future... Um, because our decision-making window for launching nuclear weapons is very small. Sure. Um, it's about 30 minutes. That's the maximum window to decide whether we're going to annihilate the world. That's a very short window. Um, you have to be able to you know, count on having the right information on hand if you're a nuclear decision-maker. Do you have the right information on hand? So you can see that in the future, if we had... AI-enabled information systems that could tell us with, with uh, much more certainty that there is or is not a nuclear attack underway, you can see how that would be attractive to, to policymakers. But the problem is, is the policymakers who are in the Situation Room or wherever are still looking at a screen and they're being given kind of dumbed down information because you can't see all of it on a screen, right? Sure. So you might have a powerful AI behind that powering the, the interface, but at the end of the day, the leader is going to see uh, attack underway or not under attack underway. Now, there are two problems here. Do they trust it or not trust it? If they trust it and there's no attack underway, then they order attack and basically brought about the end of the world. If they don't trust it and there is an attack underway, then basically we're all dead mm. and we didn't retaliate, right? So you can see see the, the dilemma here. And so it was 2019, I was in the middle of a study on the impact of artificial intelligence on weapons of mass destruction. It's a larger study, it's not out yet, um, hopefully in the next year. Um, and 
I was thinking about these issues and I was actually writing a scenario like this into the introduction of the study thinking, you know, let me help um, nuclear weapons experts visualize where this could potentially go. This is the worst case scenario. It's totally fictional. And two nuclear weapons experts or nuclear deterrence experts wrote an article in War on the Rocks calling for such a system. Mm -hmm. They called it the dead hand. You can look it up, um, dead hand, War on the Rocks. And they were saying, you know, because decision making windows are shrinking because the speed of war is increasing and we're going to have hypersonic missiles and all of that, we need a faster system to be able to launch a nuclear retaliatory strike and make sure there's none of that human meddling, yeah. right? And I was like, oh my goodness, somebody actually wrote this? How is this even possible? No. So I decided I was going to write um, a screenplay. I wanted to produce a film to kind of convince Americans at least that this is a really bad idea. And if you ever catch wind of, you know, the Department of Defense, you know, going down this direction or, or you know, we need to stop them. And um, so I wrote the novel first because mm -hmm. I know how to write novels and it was a way for me to work out the issues that I wanted to work out. So that became Rescind Order, which is a techno thriller. And I'm now adapting that techno thriller into a graphic novel um, for younger audiences. So for high school and, and college audiences, because I think that, and it's not just about AI. So there's also social media, deep fakes. I do cyber. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of different elements that come into play in the novel that all demonstrate kind of the incredibly complex technological context in which decision makers now have to make end of the world decisions. So I think that, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, it definitely got me, it got me thinking, one of the things I was thinking about, once again, as you bringing up this topic of AI and decision making, it got me thinking about, about war games in the 1980s. And I was just, one, I was just got me thinking, uh, of, of all, you know, obviously, you know, you watch all this stuff as well, uh, the good and the bad. What, what, uh, in growing up, as you watch these movies, what what do you think the uh, what was the the most realistic? At least everything you know today, uh, what was the most scary slash realistic and the worst that <laughs> that that uh, you watched of this elk of movies? The most realistic would be Contagion. Um, okay. In 2014, um, Steven Soderbergh was yeah. the director. Um, um, it was a, a virus. Um, that was kind of a combination of two, two pathogens that um, came out of Asia and then spread around the world. And I think it, it depicted a lot of the issues that we've seen yeah. in our own experience. And, and unfortunately we are in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, so very, I think, yeah. I think it underplayed how long and this thing is. Um, so the movie had to move things very quickly because they sure. only have two hours. Um, but yeah, so I think you miss you miss just the the length of time. They try to show that with the high school student not being able to go to the prom and things like that. Yeah. But um, so I think that would be the most realistic, but that doesn't necessarily make it my most favorite. I think, you know, of the nuclear films, I gravitate especially towards Dr. Strangelove. In fact, when I taught a course on weapons of mass destruction at National Defense University, I used to say to my students, everything you need to know about nuclear deterrence is in Dr. Strangelove. You really <laughs> don't need to know anything else. Because at the end of the day, I don't care what sort of fancy terminology the Department of Defense folks want to put on it. It happens in here. Yep. And I think that Stanley Kubrick got it. He understood just the crazy part about it is that it happens in here, in the heads of decision makers. 
And it's not tangible until it's too late, right? If, if, if we see a detonation, deterrence failed. Right. And um, so, and then I, you mentioned, I love Jurassic Park. Um, at the time, I didn't know how potentially real it was, but now with synthetic biology, um, with uh, DNA sequencing and synthesis, and I've heard about um, projects where they're trying to recreate the woolly mammoth, um, I could now see us at some point recreating extinct species um, and bringing them back, back to life. Should we do that with dinosaurs? Probably not. Um, I think the movies kind of show us why that would be a pretty bad idea. Absolutely. Although I, I did spend time about a year ago with um, with Dr. Dana Rashid from University of uh, Montana when she's she's reverse engineering the chicken, uh, which is which is actually pretty cool. So you have a small dinosaur, but well, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Um, but, but one question while we're while we're on this topic, this is a serious question. I asked this to uh, to Colonel Dr. David Barnes uh, several episodes ago, but um, I'm going to give it to you as well. Um, at any time uh, during your career, when you were hanging out in the Pentagon and people started arguing about some topic, did you ever say you can't fight in here? This is the this is the war room. Someone said it. Okay. I didn't <laughs> say it, but someone said it. All right. Well, <laughs> as long as someone says it. It's yes. Natasha, while, while I have you, this, this is really a fascinating discussion. Um, I, I typically hand the floor over to our guests at the end again uh, to uh, for any shout outs, uh, mentions, uh, influencers, mentors uh, along this amazing journey of yours. Uh, please take the floor uh, for a couple of minutes. Anyone that you specifically want to point out, highlight that has been really instrumental uh, in keeping you on this path with these interests, which, you know, if it wasn't for them, you know, uh, Dr. Natasha Badjabo would be practicing law or selling real estate or doing something totally different. Wow, that's that's a long list and it goes back. So I'll try to trace trace the path, but I think the very first individual instrumental in my career was Dr. Bill Potter. He's the director of the Center for Nonproliferation Studies out in Monterey, California. Um, he's the one who pulled me aside in the middle of an arms control simulation class and asked me if I had done this before. I thought he was thinking I was completely out of my mind. Um, <laughs> turns out later on, he thought that I should do this with my life. And, and uh, so I think that was, you know, number one uh, for sure. And then, of course, everyone along the way. So, you know, from job to job, I got most of my jobs through, through people I know. Um, but I think um, so... You know, at the Fletcher School, my dissertation chair, um, Dr. Um, Bob Falsgraf, um, he was absolutely instrumental in me finishing my PhD and, you know, um, getting my job at the Center for the Study of Weapons of Mass Destruction at National Defense University. Um, and then Andy Weber, who is actually currently my colleague, but he was at the time the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical and Biological Programs, Defense Programs. Um, at the Pentagon, and I had an opportunity to meet with him when he had first started that position. And he asked me, hey, would you want to come work with, for me? And I said, yes. And so that led to a three-year um, detail in total at the Pentagon and also at the National Nuclear Security Administration. I mean, ultimately, I think that is the number one um, major defining point in my career, giving me that kind of exposure and being able to work across so many issues. Um, I could definitely point to that. And then 
Um, actually, his wife, Christine Parthamore, who I also met working at the Pentagon, she's now my boss. She's the <laughs> CEO for the Council on Strategic Risks, and um, she's extremely supportive of my, my creative work. Um, she is out-of-the-box thinker, innovative, and um, so it's really exciting to have um, you know, a think tank job in DC, but still be able to do some, some really interesting things. And then of course, Lydia, who uh, linked you with me and said, hey, you know, you should talk to Natasha. So I'm really appreciative of that. Absolutely. Really great stuff, Natasha. This is uh, just it's such an exciting portfolio uh, and, and really wishing you the best with all of this uh, moving forward. Um, for everybody that's going to be listening to, to this episode on our podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, uh, you've been listening to Dr. Natasha Bajima, uh, Director of the Converging Risk Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks, uh, Founder and Chief Executive Officer of Nuclear Spin Cycle, uh, pick up her various novels, Bionic Bug, Rescind Order, Genomic Data, Project Gecko, uh, her, her nonfiction, uh, Terrorism and Counterterrorism, and Weapons of Mass Destruction and Terrorism, uh, and keep an eye out for uh, the radioactive uh, road tripping travel. When does that start? Uh, when I'm leaving um, uh, for my trip in December, but I have a website right now. It's radioactiveroadtrip.com, so you can go there, check it out. I also have a Patreon, and, and you can go onto Patreon and look me up, Natasha Bajma, and you'll find my Patreon. Outstanding. Uh, Natasha, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to talk to us. I want to thank you for everything you do to... Uh, keep us all safe. And uh, as we say on our show, thank you for helping to create a better tomorrow via what you're doing. Really very inspiring stuff. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.